turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Uh, we're going to finish up uh, chapter 7 today. Um, I would encourage you, if you um, were not here last week, to go to the website, uh, lh-cc.org, and uh, click on the sermon uh, link and listen to last week's where I uh, kind of set the stage for the last part of this chapter. We're going to look at, um, we're going to, we're going to finish it uh, today. I'm going to read initially from, from the ESV, but as we work through it, I'm going to, uh, I'll have a, a translation that probably won't match exactly uh, what, what it says in the ESV, not because the ESV is bad, but because I'm going to try to explain what I think Paul is, is saying in his really dense, and it's just a really dense section, uh, and he kind of assumes with phrases like the law of sin, that you know exactly what he's talking about, and, and the law, this, um, the law that, uh, the law that, the law of sin, which in other places he calls the law of sin and death, and then he talks about this law that, that we have we have developed a law that's not the law of God. So it gets a little bit confusing. So as we come back through it, um, as we work through the, a couple of the main portions of it, I'll have a, a slightly different translation that I hope will, will help explain what he's getting at. So let's, um, let's pray and we'll get started. Our Father, we are thankful for your, um, your grace, your love. Uh, we're grateful, Father, that uh, we as, as Gentiles have uh, become partakers in the riches that uh, were Israel's. And Father, we're thankful for that, and we just pray that uh, today through your word we would, learn, uh, we would learn how deep your love indeed is for us and for the whole world, the way that uh, you from, uh, from the beginning planned uh, to crucify your son, for the sake of the world and for Israel. And Father, we're thankful for that. And we just pray, Father, we would develop a, a sense of, of purpose and awareness that uh, we've not had before, that we might go forth encouraged and, and empowered by, the, by, uh, by what you've been doing in, in the world and, and what you're now uh, doing in us through the Spirit. Uh, we pray, Father, uh, all these things. We pray you be with us and uh, give us understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapter 7, we're going to begin, we're going to begin by looking at, uh, starting in verse 14, and we will, we will start there. I'm going to back up just a little bit and reiterate uh, some of the things I said last week, but that's where we're going to begin. So let's read uh, verses 14 through the end of chapter 7, and then we will start in. Uh, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find that to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and, and taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. We saw last week that in chapter seven, Paul is dealing with how the law works within the purposes of God through Israel and for the world. And how with the appearing of Jesus and his one righteous act of chapter five, on Israel's behalf, God dealt with sin in Jesus's flesh. This in turn was God's way of dealing with sin in the flesh of Israel and ultimately in all of mankind. For Paul, the problem with humanity in general and Israel in particular was sin in the flesh. Sin in the flesh of Israel, sin in the flesh of all human beings. It is the flesh, that part of humanity that is subject to decay, in which sin does its work. Verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, the passions of sin, which were revived through the law, were at work within our body, that is, the body of Israel, bearing fruit unto death. That is, death as we ultimately see in the death and exile of Israel. What God has done in Jesus, then, is to deal with sin in the flesh. And Paul will develop the practical outworking of this in the next chapter, in chapter 8 of Romans. And while for you and me as Gentiles, it is straightforward to talk about Jesus dying for our sins and to move on then to the practical task of working this out, Within the context of the first century Jew, to whom he was writing, so he's writing to Gentiles and Jews but that are trying to live together in one body and in the Roman church. Within the context of the first century Jew, it's not enough simply to say that Jesus died for your sins. Therefore, let's go live in the death and resurrection through the Spirit. For the Jew, and for God, we might add, and for, and for us now as well, this is a covenant issue. This is a covenantal issue for Israel. And thus for Paul, when God deals with sin, he does so through the covenant. To talk about God's dealing with sin apart from the covenant would be to talk about who won a game without a game ever having been played. The way God puts the world to rights is through the covenant. Not just the covenant made with Abraham, though that is primary, but the covenant made at Sinai, under which Israel herself remained in Paul's time, and under which the Jews of today also all, uh, still abide if they are outside of the Messiah. For Paul, the renewal of the Abrahamic covenant meant the bringing to a close the era of Israel under the Mosaic covenant, the folding up and the fulfilling of the purpose behind the giving of the Mosaic law, the added covenant which had been put in place for specific time-conditioned purposes. Thus, the Mosaic Covenant had done what, what it needed to do among Israel, and Israel can now, 
in Paul's words, die to it and rise with the Messiah through faith and the obedience of the Messiah on her behalf. And this is important for Paul. In chapter 7, this is a recurring theme. They, they can die to it, not because the Torah was somehow bad, as we saw last week in Paul's rhetorical question. He said, is the law sin? And then says, may it never be. They can die to it, not because it's bad, but because the law had served its purpose in bringing sin to light within Israel, calling sin, sin, and making sin exceedingly sinful. Lots of sin in that sentence, but that's what the law was doing within Israel. It was, he was doing, God was doing this through the law in order to deal with sin in the flesh of Jesus. This is Paul's larger point, and this is what he's going to get to in chapter 8. The law isn't something that needs to be, that we need to be, that Israel needed to be delivered from because it was somehow evil. No, it is, he, they were to be delivered from it because it's condemning and sin naming purpose had come to an end in the death of Christ, where he canceled it as a condemning document that led to Israel's death. When you were dead, he says in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Verse 14, very important. Having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Thus God, through Christ's one righteous act, brought Israel out from under the condemnation of the law, as we'll see in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Not because it was some kind of flawed document. No, it was doing its purpose in Israel, the representative we and I of this whole passage as I mentioned last week, and we'll develop again today. When we bring this covenantal perspective back to the table in our interpretation of Paul, everything begins to fall into place. Now, I should note that when uh, some people will use the notion of, of the covenant in different ways, what I mean when I say bring this covenantal approach back to the interpretation of Paul I mean this, that God's, save, God's means of saving the world from sin in the flesh was through the covenant made with Abraham and, secondarily, as a temporary measure, the Mosaic covenant, which was added to keep Israel as a people until the coming of Messiah and to bring sin to light within Israel so that God could then deal with it in the flesh of his son. That's a mouthful, but the, the point is, God deals with sin only through the covenant that he made with Abraham, right? And then secondarily through the covenant that he made with Israel, but only as a way to, to prevent Israel from disintegrating until he could bring his son into the world, right? and, and for other minor purposes, but that's, that's the essence of it. But our interpretation within the church has often languished because we have screened out this primary meaning that makes all secondary meanings possible. If we fail to read Paul within a covenantal framework, we will have to create some other framework through which to view him. 
This covenantal perspective dominates all of Paul's letters. In letter after letter, he is dealing with some aspect of the covenant, how through its renewal, humanity itself is being renewed. I could multiply examples, but I should just mention Galatians 3, which we went through before Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Read those within this covenantal perspective where, where God through the covenant is renewing all of mankind and things will begin to make sense. Remember last week that I mentioned that the we, so the word we and the word I in chapter 7 are the representative we and I that call that speak of Paul as the representative Israelite, as one among Israel. The representative I who speaks about himself as though he were the whole people. Okay? So when Paul in chapter 7 says, I, I did this, I died to the law that I might be raised, he is referring to himself as a representative of Israel as the, the people itself. In this current text, 7, 14 through 25, we will also see how this helps us to understand what he is saying much more clearly than if we presuppose that he is merely giving his, his personal testimony, his psychological testimony about life apart from and prior to Christ. Recall last week how we saw that Paul, in talking about how he was alive before the law, but when the law came, sin revived and I died, he was actually telling uh, or retelling the story of Israel, how Israel was in a state of grace before receiving the law with her sins not being counted against her, but how when the law came, and you can follow this in Exodus, follow this through in, in Exodus, when the law came, so also punishment for transgression, in other words, condemnation came. So before the law, I was alive, Paul says, but when the law came, sin revived and I died. This condemnation, the condemnation of the law, not because the law was bad, but this condemnation of the law killed Israel. This death of Israel is reflected in the death of exile with that first generation, the one that received the law, dying outside the land of her inheritance. And later, the next generation or a few generations later, the death of exile reflected in texts like Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, where what Israel needs in that text, so look at Ezekiel 37 in light of this. What Israel needs as a result of being dead is resurrection. And God says, I'm going to bring you out of your graves. I'm going to resurrect you. Why? Because she's dead. And so this image of exile as death is actually pervasive. It's here in this passage as well. But what he's saying is that, look, the law is actually what killed you. Your disobedience to the Mosaic law, not because it was bad, your sin actually, which was activated by the law, was condemned by the law and you died. Now, it is certainly true that this is very personal to Paul. But the argument here is not about Paul as an individual. And I know that for us, this is very difficult to, it's a very difficult way to think about what Paul is saying. But this is about Paul as one among Israel, the people chosen by God, as we saw in the Psalm, Psalm 135, the people chosen by God to be the light of the world, 
the teacher of the foolish, he says in Rome, earlier in Romans, a guide to the blind. The ones who, he says, had the very oracles of God. And these oracles then were to be taken to the rest of the world. But the strange and purposeful truth was that sin was also in Israel. Having taken her captive, he says, and having held her in bondage under sin's power and rule. And it did this through the good law of God, about which he has the following to say. In verse 14, he says, for we know, and this will begin my translation, but follow along. For we know that the law is spiritual. How do we know that, Paul? Well, if we read the text, it says it was written with the very finger of God. We know that the law is spiritual. And the finger of God is a way of talking about the spirit of God. The spirit of God wrote the law upon tablets made of stone. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am animated by flesh, that is fleshly, having been sold under sin. Here he, uh, he isolates the problem within Israel. So remember when he says, we know that the law is spiritual. Who's that? Who knows, Paul? He just said in chapter 7, verse 1, I'm speaking to you who know the law. This is talking to Israel. We know that it's spiritual, but I, the representative of Israel, I am animated by flesh, fleshly, having been sold under sin. Here he isolates the problem within Israel, and this is the problem. A law that is animated by spirit is given to a people animated by flesh, fleshly people. For this is all of humanity's problem, but it's more pointed as it relates to Israel, since she is the people of the creator God chosen for the sake of the world. Recall how Moses longed for all of Israel to have God's spirit. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, Moses says, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. This is what Moses is longing for. He's longing for the people to be animated by the spirit of God so that they can obey the spiritual law. But instead, they're going to languish in exile, languish in death. What Israel did not realize, and what Paul is telling us here, is that Israel, under the law, was God's means to both guard them as a people. Remember Galatians 3, where she's under the household slave until she can receive the inheritance. And she, is also, and she was also under the law to bring Jesus into the world so that God could keep his through Israel promise to the world. And so that he might deal with sin in Israel and therefore in the world. Israel, before and outside of her Messiah, was sold under sin, Paul says. They were slaves. They were slaves subject to what he calls the law of sin and death. What he means by this is that there's a fixed relationship between sin and death, whereby sin brings death. In framing Israel's situation this way, he's making an analogy between Israel's slavery in Egypt and her state under the law, where one taskmaster, Pharaoh, is exchanged for the other, sin. Israel did not realize that her slavery in Egypt was a picture of hers and also the world's slavery to sin. 
And that when God was bringing Israel out of slavery to the powers of Egypt, he was working toward a greater deliverance of Israel through Israel, through Jesus for the world. Sin in Israel is the problem. And God is bringing about a solution whereby he can deal with sin and in Israel for the sake of the whole world. Thus, this talk about sin dwelling in me in this text, while it is true of Gentiles as well, us, the argument that Paul is putting forth is related to God's overarching purposes within the world in the book of Romans called God's righteousness, which, as we have seen, is about how God remains faithful to the divine plan through Abraham, through Israel, to the world, so that the promise to Abraham and his descendants is fulfilled. And this is the promise, and this, this promise is fulfilled through the condemnation of sin in the flesh of the Messiah. We should note very carefully, and I'll come back to this one in chapter 8, that the condemnation that, under, that, that God performs in the flesh of Jesus is not the condemnation of Jesus. It's the condemnation of sin in the flesh of Jesus. And it's a very important point for Paul. He is con God is condemning sin in the flesh of the Messiah. And that's how he deals with sin in Israel, in the flesh of Israel, and in the flesh of the whole world. The rush to application relating to this passage, the rush to application has very often truncated the message of the scriptures and has led us to the place where we feel like we have to squeeze this text to have meaning for us as Gentiles. But isn't it grand? Isn't it grand that God, through the sordid history of Israel, has all along been saving the whole world from the decay of sin through that people, and that the law of Moses, good yet temporary, in order to bring Israel to maturity, to her Messiah, was also a part of God's plan to bring sin into one place in order to defeat it. And this is what he has done. This is the message of chapter 7 and early in chapter 8 of Romans, that God was doing something unbeknownst to Israel, unbeknownst to, uh, to us as the wider Gentile world, whereby he would deal with sin once and for all in the flesh of Jesus on behalf of Israel and also on behalf of the wider world. Into this story, we as Gentiles are stitched, and in it, we find life in Israel's king, the true king and Lord of the world. This is the message of the gospel. If this doesn't lead us to victorious living, which we'll see in chapter 8 is what Paul proposes, I don't know what will. Knowledge of the unveiled divine plan that reached even you and me is a shot in the arm to those who can't figure out who they are and whose they are. You and I are sons, those who inherit the earth through the Messiah Jesus. That's the message. And in the living out and proclamation of God's plan through Israel in the Messiah for the world, we can humbly stand firm in the face of persecution, which is sure to come, and our, again, humble insistence that we have the keys to the renewal of all creation. Think about that. That in the gospel, we have the keys to the renewal of all creation. That's what Paul is saying, as we'll see in chapter 8. Now, let's turn to verses 15 and following. He says in verse 15, 
And it seems to he's taken like a really personal turn here. It's not exactly that. He's still maintaining the, the I and the we as the representative of Israel. And so when he's saying these things, think this is Israel, the people, a single entity. For what I am doing, he says, I do not know. For not what I will, this I do. But what I hate, this I do. And if I do what I do not will, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is not I who am doing it, but sin dwelling in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. For to will the good is, is present to me, but to do the good I do not find. For not what I will, I, this I do. But what I don't will, the bad, this is what I do. And if I do what I do not will, this is very confusing language, I know. If I do not do what I will, no longer is it I that am doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Okay, so it's very confusing. But basically what he's saying is that there's a situation here where I know what the law says, right? I know the law is good. I know that what it says is good and that I should be obeying it. Okay, he's describing the struggle between the good and the bad. And the good here is not simply just some abstract good in general. It is what the law prescribes. That is the good. Okay, so we have to keep that in mind. He, he still is within the metaphor of I representing Israel. The bad is what I hate in this passage and the actions that result from sin dwelling in me. Also, Yet assumed here, the bad is also what the law forbids and condemns. We must keep in mind, once again, here that the I is Israel under the law. Now, how does this work? How can there be a struggle within Israel? And here we can talk about the individual Israelites. How can there be a struggle within the theoretical Israelite where the, the Israelite both desires to do what the law prescribes? but then ends up doing what the law forbids. And we ourselves, to ask the question really is to answer it, but we have had similar conflicts. We all have felt those times when we know what to do and we know to do good, but yet we seem powerless to do it. We, can do, we, we all can relate to that. Um, the spirit, Jesus said, is willing. The flesh is weak, he says. But this is about Israel's law, not about us as our experience, although that's that's important. It's a very specific thing, not just having a conflict of conscience for Israel and the theoretical as uh, Israelite Paul. This struggle was very real under the law. One could at one and the same time recite the magnificent Psalm 119, whose central subject is Torah, and at the same time realize that the more one seeks to find the life that it promises, the more one's secret faults are revealed, and the more it shows up those secret faults. The opening of Psalm 119 actually captures the dilemma of Paul and any Israelite perfectly. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my way, this is very important um, 
kind of insertion, not an insertion, but an exclamation here. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. For the psalmist, he acknowledges and lauds the testimonies, the precepts, the statutes, the commandments, and the righteous judgments. And he acknowledges his obligation to do them diligently. He also acknowledges the benefits of keeping them. They result in blessing. See, see Deuteronomy 28 there, the blessings that will come upon those who keep it. They establish my, his ways, he says. They make him unashamed. They enable him to give thanks with an upright heart. But we hear also the conditional, the desire that obedience be achieved. Oh, that my ways may be established, he says, to keep your statutes. In other words, there's the will to do it, but often not the ability. Now, this doesn't mean that every Israelite died and went to hell because they couldn't keep every single law. It simply does not. The word is clear that there, there is a righteousness apart from law, and there always has been. The word is clear that there, that there were righteous Israelites who lived in light of God's faithfulness and were themselves faithful. It is expressly for this purpose that sacrifices of atonement were put in place. Each year, the sins of the people would be put upon the scapegoat, the Azazel, and it would be driven into the wilderness to take Israel's sins outside of the camp. But Israel, as a single people, as God's people through whom he would save the world and through whom, according to the flesh, the Messiah came, was in the situation whereby she could at one and the, one at the, and the same time long for obedience, love the good and just law, and at the same time realized that she had failed to be that perfect Israelite through whom the promise of sonship would be fulfilled. She also knew that there was a king coming through whom all of this could be realized, a faithful son of God like Israel. But in the meantime, under the law, she lived in a form of slavery in hopes of deliverance from what Paul calls this body of death. Exactly the same struggle and mindset he is capturing in 21 through 24. He says, I find then this about the law. When I want to work the good, that is the good which is required by the law, the bad is close at hand. For I delight in the law of God according to the inner man. But I see another law in my members waging war against the law of my mind, which wants to do the will of wants to do the law of God. And that law that is at work within my members is taking me captive to the law of sin, which is in my members. And then verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me out of this body of death? Now, to understand what Paul is getting at here, we must explore what Paul means when he uses this body with members metaphor. Here, Paul is speaking about members and this body of death as uh, as Israel, as a body, and its individuals as members of that body. This is the same language that he uses elsewhere to talk about the church as a body, and its members as those who comprise the body. Romans 12, in this very book, for just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, 
So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This metaphor is everywhere. And this metaphor of the body as it relates to Christ in the church is here in Paul in this in uh, 21 through 24 is being used as Israel as a body with its many members. Okay? This is not unprecedented. The same metaphor was used to talk about Israel's king and her people, with the king being the head and the people being the body. And this is a part of a larger idea of royal representational and incorporative theology. Here's what I mean. If we look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, we see there that, that uh, Israel comes to David at Hebron, and they say to him, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Right? Now, we think, well, what in the world does that mean? This is not a metaphor we're accustomed to, to thinking about. But situate it within, within that metaphor of a body with members or a body with a head. And you will see exactly what they're getting at. They are saying to David, you are our head and we are your body the metaphor, and all make up one people of God. And they say to him, previously when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed David king over Israel. Note here that all Israel portray themselves as the body of David, with David as the head, with the implication that they are unified in every way. This is precisely what we find also when Jeroboam and all of northern Israel announce that they have no inheritance in David. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is the king, not David, but he's the son of David. He's the son of Solomon, who is the son of David. Yet they still talk of David as their representative king, based on the promise made to David that there will always be a king on the throne. They then announce, Jeroboam, that they, that they have no share in him, and they have rejected his reign and his son's reign over them, effectively announcing their independence from Judah and the inheritance. 1 Kings 12, 16, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now look to your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. David's been long gone, but David is the representative king. They say in verse 17, But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. So Israel, that is under Jeroboam, has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. What is true of David is true of his people and those who claim him as their king. Any inheritance he might have had is theirs and vice versa. This language is also used of Adam and Eve, the one who is, uh, Eve is called bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. What is this saying? What is true of Adam is also true of Eve. He's her head. He's also the king. And of all of these, Israel and David, Eve and Adam, 
the church and her Messiah, we can talk about them as being in the other, as one incorporated into the other. You can be in David, as they say, we have no inheritance in David. You can talk about being in Adam with him as your representative king and you following him and doing the things that Adam did. Or you can talk about being in Christ. Okay. Now, what, what he, what's happening is that Paul is using this metaphor in a way that is unexpected to talk about Israel as the, the whole body, this body of death, and then it having members of which he is one. He uses this body, this body metaphor with members to refer to Israel and her individual members. And his point is this, verses 23 and 24. But I see, he says, another law in my members. Keep in mind who the members are. This is Israel. Waging war against the law of my mind, which wants to do the law of God. And that law that is at work within my members, that is within Israel, is taking me captive to the law of the individuals, to the law of sin, and the law of sin, he says here, which is in my members. In other words, the law of sin is doing a major work within Israel. And what's it leading to? It's leading to death. So that Israel as a body goes into exile, goes into a state of death. Paul is the eye, and the others of Israel are the members, and they are part of the one body of death. This death, as we have seen on many occasions, is what Israel herself is under as a result of the law of sin, which leads to the death of exile. See Ezekiel 37 again. What Israel needs is life, resurrection, eternal life, in other words, which was intended by the law. The law, Paul says, was unto life, but it was unable to deliver that life. Not because it was bad, but because Israel was in the flesh. That is, she was in Adam. For this reason, he thanks God through Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord, and makes a concluding remark about Israel's status now. In Christ, between the Messiah and resurrection, where the body is redeemed and the flesh is no longer, no longer subject to sin's rule. It's a very strange, strange ending to the chapter. But he says, I give thanks to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore, then, I myself, on the one hand, in my mind, serve the law of God. But on the other hand, in my flesh, I serve the law of sin. What a strange way to end the chapter. But this is, this is where we will also leave it. Paul, before turning to the next phase of the argument, sums up where he is, or rather, where Israel is if she's in the Messiah. Between the cross and the return of Christ, where all of us who are in the Messiah are, and we are in between the death of, the death of Christ, where sin was dealt with, but we have sin dwelling in our flesh that is plaguing us this whole time. It is a phase, Paul says, where those who are in the Messiah serve the law of God with the mind. Keep in mind what the new covenant does by the spirit. It writes the law on the heart in order that we may do it. And yet, Paul says, there still remains the flesh, which is serving the law of sin. 
And what this means is that our bodies, though not exactly the same thing as flesh, but it is where the flesh abides, must undergo transformation, redemption from the decay before the flesh can be entirely defeated. This is what that's all about in 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about the, the, the sarcocos, the, the fleshly body dying. This is why we must undergo death, our physical bodies, so that death can put on immortality. The body is where the flesh lies. Doesn't mean that the body is bad. In fact, Paul goes, goes to great lengths to say that the body is good, but there's the flesh that inhabits our bodies must be dealt with. Redemption from decay must happen before the flesh can be entirely defeated. In the meantime, Israel, and we for that matter, are to be about putting to death the deeds of the body, he will say, putting to death the flesh and its lust by the spirit. For that is the new phase in Israel's and our journey out of Egypt into the promised land. On our way to the resurrection. Now, by which spirit? We're going to see in chapter 8 that he's going, to, he's going to come back to this theme of everyone's in Egypt. God brings them out of Egypt, and he's calling them into the resurrection, right? He's bringing them into the land, and the land is, is a great symbol for the resurrection. In the meantime, we are in the wilderness. We are headed to the promised land. We are partaking of the first fruits of the spirit. Is very important, which means the new covenant has been fulfilled. And the spirit then, we by the spirit are to be putting to death the deeds of the body so that we may enter into eternal life. Not so that we can somehow earn our way there, but that's what we are to be doing in the meantime. By the spirit, the flesh is to be crucified and we are to be about doing that all the time. And that's where he's headed in chapter eight. He is going to take us in chapter eight from no condemnation, right? We've died and we've been raised with Christ. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then he's going to explain how it is that in the meantime, Jew and Gentile, we have been grafted in, he's going to say a little bit later, Jew and Gentile are both partaking of the same spirit in the same body, and we by the spirit are to be putting to death the deeds of the body that we might inherit eternal life, that we might go into the resurrection at the return of Christ. And that's where he's headed. Uh, this is a, it's a very complex argument that he's doing, but if we keep in mind that, that Paul himself is arguing not about where all people in general are, and where they've all come from. But if, if we look at it within the argument about where, what's happened to Israel. For Israel, it's not just a matter of saying, oh, Jesus died for our sins. There's, there's the Mosaic law that has to be dealt with. It stands there uh, demanding that somebody deal with it and explain what in the world it was doing and why it is that now it's no longer uh, one that is controlling us and condemning us. And Paul goes about to explain that. Keep that in mind. Continue to reread it. Uh, it's, it's very complex. I know it is. It's like drinking from a, a fire hydrant. But, but it's very important to see for this reason. If we can't, if we can't see the way that, the way that God from 
before the ages were formed, had planned to crucify his son for the sake of the sins of the whole world, and to do this through Israel, we will miss out on the glory, and we'll miss out on the great love of God that found you and me at the end, or at least as part of the end, uh, of his divine plan. It is in that way that we can truly sing the love of God. The love of God is so great that were the, were the whole world to be, a, uh, to be parchment, you could never write it. And uh, that, that, I think, is, is really the payoff to, to seeing what it is that, that God has been doing through Israel for the sake of the world. We'll leave it there. We're planning to uh, go into chapter 8 next time. It's like the, the most beautiful chapter in the whole Bible. So I hope you'll join us.